Hello and welcome. You're listening to Writers Aloud, a podcast brought to you by writers for the Royal Literary Fund in London. Hello and welcome to episode 381 of Writers Aloud. In this episode, in another instalment of our special Poetry Break series, the poets John Greening and our host Julia Copus discuss two favourite classic poems by Edward Thomas, The Owl and Edelstrop. This is Poetry Break for the Royal Literary Fund. I'm Julia Copas, and joining me today is the poet, critic and editor, John Greening. John has taught both adults and children in Upper Egypt, Scotland and the USA, but has been based in Cambridgeshire with his family for many years. Recipient of a number of awards, he has published over 20 collections, large and small, including To the War Poets and The Silence, both from Carcanet. He's also edited many books about poets and poetry, from Elizabethan love poets to W.B. Yeats, Thomas Hardy, Edward Thomas, which is handy because Thomas is the subject of today's programme, and Ted Hughes. His edition of Ian Crichton Smith's poetry, Deer on the High Hills, appeared from Carcanet in 2021, and his anthologies include the intriguingly titled Ten Poems About Sheds and Hollow Places, also released in 2021. A long-standing reviewer for the TLS, John has run a monthly poetry school workshop in Cambridge and also been RLF Writing Fellow at Newnham College. Uh, So, John, welcome. Thank you. (laughs) So tell us which particular Edward Thomas poem you have chosen um, and how you first came to it and what what it was that first drew you to it. Well, chosen one called The Owl. And uh, what drew me to it? It's always difficult to know, isn't it? I think perhaps because it's a walking poem, and I like walking, that interests me. Perhaps because it's a war poem, and that's something that interests me too. Um, Maybe the conversational tone or the... Or the hesitant quality about it, which is something that uh, that appeals. And uh, I suppose it was when I was at school I came across it. It was certainly after more famous Edward Thomas poems like Adelstrop or As the Team's Head Brass, perhaps my late teens then. Um, it's sort of grown on me o- over the years, really. I don't remember the first reading, but it's a poem that I feel that I've, I've known a long time. Um, I think probably as I got to know more about Edward Thomas's life, then it came to me more because of that and the context it was written in. Whatever T.S. Eliot said about such things, I think, you know, learning about the the biographies of of writers does influence and help you understand them. And the fact that he wrote all these poems in so short a time, and this was really not not long before he died. Yes. um, In his prime in 1917. Yeah, and that's an interesting point that you make about uh, context. Um, We try as far as we can to consider the poem without too much context, but... I do think mm. there is there are some poets, and Edward Thomas is definitely one of them, where a certain amount of background can enhance our reading uh, of the poetry. Yes, yeah, so we'll certainly delve a little bit into the biography as we go along. Yes. But before all of that, it would be great if you would read the poem for us. Um, mm. would, would you do that for us? Yes. I mean, I, I don't think there's any particular 
difficult words or anything like that to to cope with in the poem. So it's a quite straightforward poem to listen to, but perhaps the the uh, the word order is a bit strange at times. But it mm. could almost have been written yesterday. The owl. Downhill I came, hungry, and yet not starved. Cold, yet had heat within me that was proof against the north wind. Tired, yet so that rest had seemed the sweetest thing under a roof. Then at the inn I had food, fire, and rest, knowing how hungry, cold, and tired was I. All of the night was quite barred out except an owl's cry, a most melancholy cry, shaken out long and clear upon the hill, no merry note, nor cause of merriment, but one telling me plain what I escaped and others could not that night as in I went. And salted was my food and my repose, salted and sobered too by the bird's voice, speaking for all who lay under the stars, soldiers and poor, unable to rejoice. Thank you. So yes, you, you mentioned the the word order there. There is a lot of what we call inversion, isn't there? Mm, that's right, yeah. That starts, in fact, with the first three words, downhill, mm. I mm. came. To explain inversion for people who haven't heard of it, well, for Star Wars fans, we might call this Yoda speak. Um, on many <laughs> <laughs> on many long journeys have I gone, you know, etc. Oh, um, yes, 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 yes. So, so, so we also have here, hungry, cold and tired was I in line uh, six, mm. the second stanza. And um, it's partly for the rhyme, isn't it? Uh, but, uh, but not entirely for the rhyme. I mean, that, down, yeah. that opening downhill, that gives a kind of energy to the poem. Um, but it also suggests sort of a man being driven by forces that are behind him, in a, in a sense. Or, yes, yes. Uh, so it's, it's about emphasis, I suppose. You know, the most important thing about the opening is the downhill movement, um, oh. rather than him himself, so he doesn't begin with the eye. Yeah. yeah. And maybe a moral decline as well. Uh, because of his guilt about what he's not doing. Um, yes. He was, he was very tormented when he wrote this about, about you know, whether, whether he should join the army or, or what he should do with his life, really. This was really shortly before he did uh, join up, and he enlisted in the artist's rifles that July, and this was written in the uh, February, I believe. Mm -hmm. um, and so it's not until he actually gets into the comfortable inn that he really thinks about those other men who are out there. I mean, you wouldn't even know it was a, a war poem, which it is, Mm. until you get to that last bit. Yeah, he says at the end, doesn't it, all who lay under the stars, That's right. soldiers yes. and poor, yeah. Which evokes, um, is that famous poem by Thomas Hardy, Drummer Hodge, about the, about the, sort of the country land lying out in, under, mm. under foreign stars. Um, but it's really about a man coming down a hill after a hike to get a meal in a pub, isn't it? I mean, that's, that's yes, what yes, it is absolutely. on the face of it. Yeah, yeah. Um, but it's beautifully done. I, I wonder if you could perhaps just walk us through the, the four stanzas mm. very briefly, just in terms of content. Mm. As you say, it starts with the speaker coming down from the hills uh, after a walk. Yes, and it's the thought of having that rest under the roof. It's the way that all plays against what, what the sentences are doing that, that's so fascinating. Mm. It's 
each of the quatrains is beautifully handled. Second stanza, he gets to the inn and he has these little groups of three, food, fire and rest. Yes. Knowing how hungry, cold and tired was I. And yes. then right in the middle of the poem, an owl. And the owl comes with a wonderful stanza break, a most melancholy cry, stanza break, big gap, which you see on the page, shaken out long. Yeah. So that's beautiful. That stanza break that you've mentioned in line eight mm. to nine, that seems to sort of enact that uh, shaking out of the bird's cry. Yes, yes. Yeah, it's and magical. That anticipates the idea of salting too, like you shake it out like, like a salt cellar. And then he considers, in the third stanza, he considers the call of the owl, which is associated with all kinds of unlucky things, of course, in, in, mm. in mythology. Uh, and this little allusion, reference to Shakespeare there, the, the merry note. Yeah, so no merry note is uh, is from Love's Labour's Lost. Love's Labour's Lost, that's yeah. right. He was, and he was editing an anthology uh, when he was writing this poem and including that poem in it, so it must have been in his mind. Ah, interesting. Right, so mm. there's a, a case in point where uh, that little bit of background knowledge is fascinating, in fact, to know yeah. that he was working on Shakespeare and that allusion has crept yeah, in. an anthology called This England... Uh, it's, uh -huh. it's a bit more Hamlet than Love's Labour's Lost, this poem, really, but uh, yeah. it, it does seem to work, doesn't it? <laughs> yes, uh, it does, though, yeah, yeah. yeah. Sorry, I, I'll let you get to the end of your uh, summary here. No, and then there's a pause, really. It's an Im implicit pause before the fourth stanza, and then he's he focuses on himself. It's only when he sits down in the comfort by the fire in the pub that he realises, in a sense, it's a privilege to be able to do this, but also this powerful guilt because he's not doing his bit yet, and, and he would be before long. Yeah. Um, so much implied. His war poetry is so very different from someone like Wilfred Owens, because the, the war's barely mentioned, but when it is, it's mm -hmm. all the more effective, I think. Yes, I think so too. Um, it was going to be called, sorry, sorry to interrupt, but he, he was originally going to call this poem Those Others. That was the title oh, he was going really? to Oh, really? Wow. Uh, that would be coshing you over the head with the, uh, the meaning <laughs> of it, wouldn't it? <laughs> Yeah. And that's another, probably going back to your first question, that's another reason the poem appealed to it, because it was called The Owl. Who can resist a poem called The Owl? Yeah, so you mentioned the significance of The Owl. Why an owl in this poem, do you think? Um, he was a, a great birder, of course. He was interested and he noted down bird songs in his, his notebooks all the time. Uh, mm -hmm. And The Owl, as I know from my little study here, we have a daylight owl, which I think I mentioned to you might interrupt or join in our discussion. Uh, <laughs> so they are fascinating birds and intrusive birds, and they seem to be speaking directly to you. But traditionally, they are omens of, of death and, and misfortune, uh, mm -hmm. certainly in, in, in many cultures. I'm sure other cultures have different things. Um, so uh, he would have known that, and that, that's part of it. Uh, uh, but he doesn't make too much of that. It doesn't. It doesn't make a big thing of it. It's no, just he's there, just there. The, the owl is mm. there as a, mm. as a as a note. In fact, not even a mm. a visual thing. Yes, and that that's from the Shakespeare's well. A merry note is is in the in the, in that song from Love's Labour's Lost. A merry note, while Greasy Joan doth keel the pot. I think is the poem, isn't it? Yes. 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 Uh, okay. So just to dig into the poem a little bit deeper now. Um, mm. So we've mentioned the inverted phrasing. What about other technical aspects so you mentioned it's written in quatrains as well so quatrain yes standards made up of four lines aren't they yes yeah. that's right simple rhymed quatrains and quite a few of his poems are, are in quatrains it's, i feel it's a sort of defense against some darker forces maybe even uh, yes it's a very solid structure isn't it it is isn't it that's yeah. right so kind yeah. of someone looking for reassurance will find it in this form um, mm. and the meter the the 
the rhythm in a sense. It's it's not so much the traditional titum 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 of a much English verse. This is more tumty than titum. Mm. I think it, it inverts our expectations, like downhill. Yes. I suppose it depends if you say downhill or downhill, but cold. We don't say cold yet had heat within me, do we? We say no. cold yet had heat within me. So it, there's those there's a rhythmical. A fascinating rhythmic Yeah, it's beautiful there. rhythmically, isn't yeah, it? Yeah. I suppose there is a, a loose five beats running through the lines to yes, me. Yeah. Yes, yes. Yeah. And rhymes, there are rhymes, that, but they're unassuming rhymes, and he, he omits a rhyme if it suits him. You think you've got the pattern, and then he'll sort of throw in a half rhyme or miss it out altogether. Yeah. Repose and stars, for example, is sort of half rhyme there. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But it's the syntax, it's the sentence structure that really drives his poem and is so fascinating. And that's what makes me read it again and again, the way you're drawn by, the, by his sentences um, across the lines, across the stanzas. And you're travelling with him in, in the sentence, if you like. Yes, that sort of propels you forward on yes. through the poem, doesn't it? Yes, yeah. And that balance is important in it too. Um, hungry yet tired yet he's always qualifying yes the the effect of those yet it's as if he's sort of feeling towards towards a precision i suppose yes it, cold yes yet had heat within me um mm. tired yet so that rest had seemed the sweetest thing so tired but not so exhausted that he couldn't um appreciate the rest that was coming to him that's it so very ordinary things he's writing about, but just goes a little bit further than perhaps other poets would in analysing a very ordinary situation. Yes. And there's also repetition in the poem. You talk about the technical things and, and often monosyllables. So then at the inn, I had food, fire and rest. He, he mm, likes the, mm. the, 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 that plain language. Mm. Uh, yes, and I love the repetition in the final standard of this, the salted. Mm. And salted was my food and my repose. Salted and sobered too. I love that sort of modification from uh, just salted to salted and sobered. And all the S's. Yeah. All the S's, yeah, yeah. Um, what do you think is the, the effect here? I mean, I suppose the first time he, he mentions the word salted... Um, mm. We think of kind of spiced. Um... There's various possible sort of things he could be thinking of, and maybe the idea of preservation actually as well, like preserving, yes. you know, uh, sort of uh, by not going to war. Is preserving. Yes. So there's yeah. various. It's a really original uh, word to come at that point, um, in a in a poem that that doesn't have difficult words. I mean, melancholy is probably the longest, but the choice of word is just sufficiently unusual to yeah. make you stop and think. Mm, it's a very ordinary thing, salted, but it's not a sort of word you'd use, you know, my repose was salted, my sleep, my rest was salted. It's, 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 you know, it's very odd when you think about it, but it, but it works. Yeah, um, there's there's no sort of uh, escaping it. He makes you no. notice by the re repetition. Um, Salt in the wound is another expression comes yes, to mind, of course, yeah. and, and things like that. So it's, it's a rich choice of word. Yeah, um, particularly followed by sober there. Uh, we get yes. the sort of uh, negative connotations, if you like. Um, mm. So stepping outside the poem now, I know I said we wouldn't do uh, too much biographical context, but is there any mm. context that might inform our reading of this particular poem? Uh, yes, I think context is important in this case. It was written in 1915. Um, it was in February uh, 1915, and he'd only been writing poems for two or three months. Um, <laughs> wow. Famously, this is one. So this is one of 
one of his first poems, in many ways. Mm. Uh, he was famously uh, encouraged to to write by Robert Frost, who'd looked at some of his his reviews. He was a he was a very very busy book reviewer and very well known actually as a book reviewer. Mm. Uh, but poetry was something new for him to write. I mean, he'd read it and he was a great expert on it. Uh, so the, the first one was up in the wind, and, it, and this was this was uh, soon after that, and it was still apparently there was still snow on the ground, so it was a cold February, um, mm. and he was very lacking in confidence about this poem and all these early poems. He said at one point it still doesn't solve the problem of living, and it was very very negative, and he and he he insisted on sending them off under a, a pseudonym because he didn't want to, to be given any favours by mm. all his friends in, in the literary world. Uh, and, uh, that's very purist, isn't it? Yes, that's right, yeah. They weren't necessarily well received either. Um, so he got lots of rejections, which is encouraging for all of us, really, that it was yeah. Thomas got rejections. Uh, he, was <laughs> he, was, writing... he was rejected uh, by Harold Monroe, wasn't he, at the poetry I think he was. bookshop, I think, yeah. But he, he was a literary man. He was writing all these prose potboilers and doing a vast amount of reviewing. And so the poetry was came as a surprise. And mm. I think, he, he, like all of us writing, he sort of lacked confidence and, and needed reassurance. Mm. Um, and he didn't show it to anybody. Uh, it was only his wife, Helen, and Eleanor Fargen, um, mm -hmm. uh, author of uh, Morning Has Broken, of course. Uh, she typed them up and set them out for him. Um, she was in love with him. He was sort of the two women in his life, really, mm -hmm. uh, at this point. Uh, he used to read them aloud to his wife before bed, apparently. So this one was published, um, but it was published as by Edward Eastaway. It was published, in fact, in January 1917, so just a couple of months before he died. Uh, it's extraordinary that he wrote all those poems in that short time. I mean, it is extraordinary, and it seems... It seems all the more extraordinary to us now who, who know these poems and especially the one that I'm uh, going to look at with you in a, in a moment. Hmm. Um, they seem so set in stone and so, you know, like perfect little jewels, really. Um, yes. And so, as you say, extraordinary that he had doubts about them and, and very reassuring. Yeah. Yes, I suppose it was so much more plain, spoke sort of raw, unvarnished in style compared with the more florid writings of someone like Walter de la Mer or, mm. or other, other popular poets at the time. Um, so uh, perhaps that's, that's why. Yes, and, and ironically, or perhaps it's not an irony, but um, our ears are more attuned to this style of writing, aren't they? Oh, yes. He's um, if probably, I would say he's probably one of the poets who's would be named as the poet has most influenced many contemporary poets. Yeah, I think that's uh, a good point, yeah. He had been unable to walk uh, at the time he wrote this, so he'd sprained his ankle and it slipped on the ice, I think. Mm. And there's, you could make a whole anthology of poems that have emerged that way, like like Coleridge's famous uh, This Lime Tree Bow My Prison, where mm. he couldn't go for a walk because he'd spilt hot milk. Yes, that's stuff. right, as, yeah. There's a whole, a whole series yeah. of poems like that. Uh, and Ted Hughes's Pike, which he wrote because he couldn't go pike fishing. So he sat and wrote the poem. So uh, there we are, I've got another anthology on the weather. Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes, so that that's, that's the context. Well, he certainly found his identity, and I, for one, am very grateful that he did sprain his ankle that winter uh, <laughs> yes. of 1915 uh, and that his convalescence resulted in this flood of incredible poems. Mm. Uh, I believe yes. he wrote 16 poems in 20 days. That's right, yes. And it was a busy time too. Uh, his, his son was 
Murphin was going off to America with Robert Frost, uh, and he was quite busy writing um, mm -hmm. Adelstrop and Clone. Not quite sure when Adelstrop was, but it was not very long uh, before or after this one. Oh, I might be about to say. <laughs> mm, come on, you tell us. <laughs> Uh, well, first of all, before we get on to my poem, I want to thank you so much for talking to us so eloquently uh, and knowledgeably about Edward Thomas's The Owl. Thank so you. So the Edward Thomas poem I've chosen is also in four quatrains, and it's perhaps his most well-known poem of all, would you say? It's Adelstrop. Oh, certainly, yes. Um, now, this poem was written a month or so before The Owl. Right. Um, so it was written on the 8th of January, 1915. Mm. So, you know, some of the same biographical context that you've talked us through applies here. Yes. Um, and this was actually written less than a week after he had sprained his ankle uh, coming down from the hills. Mm. Um, and it's a poem that spawned many other poems. Um, <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> I think it was one of the first if not the first of the sort of uh, looking out of a train window poems. Um, You're probably right there. Yeah, it's, I don't think it's the first poem to begin with yes, but it's yeah, <laughs> it was that yeah. Matthew Arnold one. But, uh, but it's, you may be right about the train. So it's Philip Larkin's I Remember, I Remember. Ah, yes. And then I'm also thinking of, uh, do you know that poem by Caroline Duffy about disappearing postcodes? Um, which Which yeah. actually ends with a line from this poem. Mm. Caroline Duffy wrote the poem around the time of the Royal Mail, talking about getting rid of uh, counties in addresses. I think that was it. Oh, yes. And um, and her poem ends, and may they never be lost to her, all the birds of Oxfordshire and Gloucestershire. So mm. a direct quote from this, this poem. Um, Adelstrop is a village in Gloucestershire, near Oxfordshire. Uh, but the station itself no longer exists, so it was one of many of the victims of Dr Beeching's cuts oh. in the 1960s. I often pine for the amazing rail network that uh, the UK lost with those, yes. those cuts. Yeah. We need them to come back now, don't we? All those wonderful branch lines. We do. There's, there, there is. Um, you can't see the station if you go to Alstrop, but the the station sign is in is in or was in the bus shelter in the village, so you could see that at least. Oh yes, and I think I knew that from you. Yeah. Oh right. <laughs> <laughs> I've heard that before. Yes. Uh -huh. Yeah. Um, you've said that Thomas was a prolific book reviewer, and uh, he also kept field notes, didn't he? Sort of journal of his. He uh, did. Yes. His walks and so on. And, uh, and this poem in, in particular, well, many of them in fact, but this poem, uh, many of the images appear in an entry that he made in his field notebook. So I'll just read that. Excellent. So on the 24th of June, 1914, uh, he said, Then we stopped at Adelstrop. Through the willows could be heard a chain of blackbird songs at 12.45 and one thrush, and no man seen, only a hiss of engine letting off steam. And then he's, he sort of conflates um, a later entry. He uses a later entry in this poem. So he later says, Stopping outside Campton, by banks of long grass, willow herb and meadow sweet, extraordinary silence between the two periods of travel. 
a greater than rustic silence, he says. So oh. we can see uh, just how much from those notes has crept into the poem. So, Adelstrop. Yes, I remember Adelstrop. The name, because one afternoon of heat, the express train drew up there unwantedly. It was late June. The steam hissed. Someone cleared his throat. No one left and no one came on the bare platform. What I saw was Adelstrop, only the name, and willows, willow herb, and grass, and meadowsweet, and haycocks dry, no whit less still and lonely fair than the high cloudlets in the sky. And for that minute a blackbird sang, close by, and round him, mistier, further and further, all the birds of Oxfordshire and Gloucestershire. Lovely. An amazing poem, isn't it? It is. As long as you don't pronounce it in the American way, the Oxfordshire and Gloucestershire. <laughs> it has to be sure, doesn't it? Yes. I think the, the sonic effect. It's a are... misty effect. Yeah. yeah. And uh, and the, the rhyme with mistier is, uh, is kind of lost if you do that. It's, that's true, yes. That's a good point. He was going <laughs> um, to use unexpectedly, apparently, originally, rather than unwontedly. He was going to say unexpectedly. Which he was. was. And he changed it to unwontedly. Yeah. I was going to pick out that word before I read it because it's not a word that we use all the time now. I suppose no. I suppose we use it in the phrase "as is my won't." I don't That's know. That's right. Yes. Do yes. people even say that anymore? I'm not sure. <laughs> well, I, well, I do, but <laughs> perhaps in inverted commas. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Um, but it's just so resonant. It's full. I think of that nostalgic atmosphere. Mm. For, you know, it's probably idealised by hindsight, but that last summer before the war, because mm. uh, once he'd written this, he knew that the the war had begun, of course. Um, yes. That, and as you said, beaching and the beaching cuts, it makes us really respond to it uh, for all kinds of reasons, doesn't it? Yes, yeah, exactly. So to pick out a couple of the technical aspects, we've said that uh, mm. the poem's in quatrains, uh, four quatrains, in fact, so exactly like the owl. Uh, but mm. unlike the owl, I think the the bass rhythm, if you like, of these lines is is four beat, is tetrameter. Yeah, yeah. So we've got, um, for instance, in that second line, the name because one afternoon, you know, it's a loose kind of four beats, do, 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 do. Um, and that goes all the way through the poem. And as you mentioned, John, the, the speaker sort of begins mid-conversation almost with the word yes, mm. as if in reply to someone, yes, I remember Adelstrop. Mm. And then the next two words in line two are, are really key, I think, the name. It's a phrase that he repeats in line eight, only the name, he says. Mm. Um it's not so much the place as the, as the word associated with it, uh, associated with it. Yes, and naming is very important in the poem. So we've got Adelstrop itself, which if you count the title is repeated, I mean, we get it three times, don't we? Um, oh. And then, of course, the poem ends with the naming of those counties, yeah. Oxfordshire and Gloucestershire. I suppose for me, the general feeling of this poem well, it reminds me of this sort of ancient Greek concept of uh, kairos. Um, mm. 
So just looking at that bigger picture of the poem, the state of mind that it's describing, it's, it seems to capture a moment of, uh, of Kairos, a period of sort of uh, suspended animation. Yes. Um, or a, a pause loaded with meaning, you know, the mm. pause into which that person coughs, clears his throat. Um, so, yeah, the Greeks had two words for time. They used the word chronos, uh, which is the sort of time, as you know, that is ticked away by the, the second hand of our sort of modern clocks. Mm. But then kairos is, um, is something that exists beyond the confines of space-time so it's not it's not actually measurable so big things happen in Kairos time like falling in love and so on but we can also experience it on more mundane occasions and for me this this poem of Edward Thomas's is one of those occasions and I think the clearing of the throat I mean it, it sort of serves to emphasize the the silence you know we're reminded of the silence by this sound that sort of falls into it um, yeah, because I mean, because steam trains are dreadfully noisy things, weren't they? Yeah. When that sort of the noise when they're going along, I mean, and then it stops and the steam hisses as if sort of things quietened down. Then all that's left is the clearing of the throat. It's a sort of gradual removal of sound to enter that sort of state that you mentioned. I think, isn't it? Yeah, it's a, it's a dwindling, isn't a still it? Still point. Yes. Yeah, uh, and this is an unexpected stop, as you said. Yeah. And I believe, actually, I read somewhere, I think of Rysak, he, he had been to a concert that night, a Richard Strauss premiere, a very noisy work. So I don't know if that's... Uh, he might also have appreciated the, the silence after that. Pining after silence, <laughs> yes, yeah. Yes. <laughs> so just to think about the sounds for a moment now, we've got the sounds that are made in the poem, which we've been talking about a bit. Mm. They, they seem almost mythical, don't they? Just those very few sounds, the steam, the throat mm. clearing, and then we get the singing of this solitary blackbird in mm. line uh, 13. And that expands, that blackbird song expands very gradually into the sound of all the other birds. That's quite magical, I think. Mm. Uh, but then we also have the sounds of the words themselves. Mm. Um, and this poem is full of of full rhymes so they go all the way through and the second and the fourth line uh rhyme all the way through so we've got noon and june big fat full rhymes yeah. uh came and name yeah. dry and sky and then that final i mean it's purposely much less distinct isn't it that final pairing yes. of rhymes mistia and gloucestershire mm. and you know with a poet you know like edward thomas that he's done that uh, purposefully and purposely. Yes, yes. Uh, so yeah, I think this this poem was published in the New Statesman three weeks after his death. Yeah. Um, I don't know if it was popular from the start. I suspect it's one of those poems that's gradually caught the imagination. Yeah, I don't uh, know about it. Certainly, its the nation's favourite at one point, wasn't it? I think it was was uh, was it come near the top? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, on those surveys, they did Radio 4. Well, Radio 4's favourite, that's perhaps not The Nation, but it's Radio 4. <laughs> well, that was a good year, The only there have been others. Yeah, yeah. The only, it's the third stanza. I, I sort of have doubts it sometimes. It's sort of, there's, there's no wit less than a lonely fair. It all strikes me as a slightly affected line. But somehow it, it doesn't matter in the context of the whole thing. Oh, uh, the, the third stanza, yeah. yeah. Yeah, yes. Just a little bit mannered yes. compared with the rest of the poem. Yeah, I agree, yeah. It is a bit stuttering, that line, isn't mm. it? Which I think the word unwontedly 
is also stuttery in effect, but that suits the sudden, unexpected stopping yeah, of the train. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and then unwontedly is followed by those solid monosyllables. It was late June. Yeah. Um, but yes, I agree. That's the one line that, that maybe captures slightly. Mm. No wit less still and lonely fair. It's not conversational. You would never say, you might say no wit. Well, I don't know. But to be no wit less still is a sort of uh, is, a, is a very strange uh, combination of, of words mm. and doesn't anyway, it, it doesn't matter that in the context of the whole thing. Lot, many famous poems have bits in which you have doubts about, but it's it's the overall thing works superbly. So. Absolutely. Do you know going back to what we were saying about the uh, whether, whether it was popular to begin with? I mean, it's obviously popular now, but I think it's been very influential stylistically. But there's an awful lot of poems. Think of Simon Armitage, for example, poems that sort of start off as if they're telling you a story or, or a joke or whatever. Yes. It's that kind of, yes. And it's not a sort of a, an affirmative, yes, it's a, yes, yes, I remember. It's a chap talking with his friends it in the pub. It is as if it? he's just turned, yeah, to someone who's asked him a question or... Yeah, in that same pub where, where he heard the owl, maybe, you know. Sort of yes. Well, listen, John, it's been absolutely fascinating and uh, a real treat to talk to you this afternoon. So thank you so much oh, it's been for great. Thank you. Thank you for inviting uh, taking me. the time to do that. My pleasure um, for talking to us about the wonderful Edward Thomas. The theme music for this programme is performed on trumpet by James Copus. You can listen to more literary podcasts, including interviews with a whole host of writers via the Royal Literary Fund's showcase page. You can also subscribe to the podcasts via iTunes. For the RLF in London, I'm Julia Copus. Until next time, thanks for listening. And that concludes episode 381, which was recorded and produced by Julia Copus. Coming up in episode 382, in Location and the Writer, Bethan Roberts yearns for the island of Anglesey, Morgan Witzel explores Dartmoor, and Rebecca Goss examines the skies. We hope you'll join us. You've been listening to Writers Aloud a podcast brought to you by writers for the Royal Literary Fund in London. To subscribe to podcasts and to find out more about the work of the RLF, please visit our website at www.rlf.org.uk. Thanks for listening.